Let us listen to the word of God as it is written in the gospel of St. Mark, Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and men were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the way to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the cloud, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they laid down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of God. Well, let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we've just sung, for me to live is Christ. And Lord, we don't always know, we often don't know how to do that. And so we thank you that you've given us your word, you've spoken, you've given us your word so that we may know how to live for Christ. And you've given us your spirit, and we specially pray for your Holy Spirit this morning. Not just to help me to get it right, but Lord, to help all of us to hear the voice of God as we read the word of God. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, what a dramatic scene. If somebody suddenly came through the roof while I was preaching, everything would stop. Even I would be speechless, and uh, that would be a miracle. Question, what were these men so determined to get from Jesus? And whatever it was, at first Jesus seemed to misunderstand. He didn't understand. Instead of saying to the man who's paralyzed, who's just come through the roof, instead of saying, be healed... He says, verse 5, he says, your sins are forgiven. 
I think uh, verse 5, no doubt, must be the most surprising verse in this passage. It's patently obvious what the man's needs are. He's paralyzed, he can't walk, he's probably unemployed, he's totally dependent on other people. And Jesus, instead of saying, be healed, says, son, your sins are forgiven. It's quite, it's quite strange. It's quite bizarre. Well, once again, let's not get, get ahead of ourselves. We're spending eight, nine weeks. If you are new to us this morning, once again, a warm welcome. I do hope you have a Bible in front of you, either on your phone or on a, on a pad or, or a actual Bible. It really will be a great help to me if you can follow me as we unpack the Word of God. So welcome. We're spending eight, nine weeks in the book of Mark discovering the real Jesus. And uh, in chapter 1, you may remember chapter 1, 1 to 13, we saw John the Baptist, we saw the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus. That all happened in the south of Israel, the south of Palestine. And uh, we find that in chapter 1, verse 1 to 13. From verse 14, you remember, Jesus moved up north, and he moved up to a city, a town called Capernaum, which was a port city on Lake Galilee. Our passage, verse 1, notice we read, when he returned to Capernaum. So he's just come back from a preaching tour. So remember verse 39, chapter 1, verse 39. And he went throughout all Galilee, that's that's up in the north, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now chapter 2, verse 1, you'll notice he's returned to Capernaum. Uh, John Mark tells us he's at home. He's probably staying with Simon Peter. It's Simon Peter's home. It was probably Jesus's home for the three years of his ministry. Notice there, verse 4, many people are gathered there in the house at the door, outside the door, and Jesus was preaching the word to them. Notice that again, verse 2, which you'll remember is precisely what he told us as to why he came. Chapter 1, verse 38 Let's go to the next towns that, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. If, if I was to summarize the whole of the Gospel of John Mark, you could almost talk about a twofold ministry of Jesus. A ministry of preaching in the first half, and a ministry of dying in the second half. Notice verse 4. Mark mentions that the obvious reason that the, that the paralyzed man couldn't get to Jesus was because of the crowds in and outside the house. Interesting that uh, in Mark's gospel, he uses the word, John Mark uses the word crowd 40 times, 40 times in the first nine chapters. Now, it's obvious because of the popularity of Jesus. Jesus taught the crowds. He had compassion on the crowds. However, what is, what is quite striking in all those 40 references is that not once are they called disciples. Not once do the crowds repent and believe. They're either passive or they're temperamental or fickle. Remember the final, the final entry of Jesus in Jerusalem at the end of the gospel. The crowds call out, Hosanna, blessed is the name of the Lord. And they throw palm branches at his feet. And then just a few days later, the same crowd call out, crucify him, crucify him. They're temperamental, they're fickle. So it tells us that for Jesus, crowds were never a measure of success. Well, just like today, crowds and popularity, Twitter followers, it's never a measure of success. And it's certainly not a measure of truth. 
Here's the question. Are you part of the crowd, or are you a disciple of Jesus? Because the two aren't the same. They're never the same in Mark's gospel. The crowd stands, observes. A disciple commits to faith and to action, as seen here by these plucky squad of four. If you can't find an opening to get to Jesus, well, you make an opening. That's faith. It will remove any obstacle, even a roof, just to get to Jesus. Again, are you part of the crowd, or are you a true disciple of Christ? It's actually one or the other. There's no middle ground. Let's dig into our passage uh, under three very simple headings to help us understand the passage. The uh, The preacher's priority, number one. Number two, the preacher's person. And number three, the preacher's power. Very simple, uncomplicated. Let's dig in straight away. Principle number one, the preacher's priority. Now, before we get to the preacher's priority, let me just clear up a very, very real misunderstanding which comes from the connection between verse 5 and verse 11. So, verse 5, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 11, notice there, Jesus says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, a superficial reading of the passage could give someone the impression that the reason that the man was paralyzed was because of his sin. So the logic goes like this. This man sinned in a particular way. Consequently, he became sick and paralyzed. So Jesus had to forgive his sin before he could be healed. Therefore, the argument goes, if you're sick, it's because you've sinned. I remember before our two daughters were born, Jean and I lost four babies through miscarriages. Uh, One was a stillborn baby, our son Stephen. And uh, I remember that a Christian lady said to Jean, uh, right in the middle of all of that, um, she said to Jean, the reason you and Martin can't have children is because you've sinned and you don't have enough faith. Now, uh, it's perfectly true, it's perfectly true that Jean and I could have more faith. It's perfectly true that we sin, especially Martin. But it's equally true that that is total nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Now, let me take you a step back again, back into Genesis. Genesis 3, we have the fall. Man rebels against God. And the consequence of that is that brokenness does enter our world in every area of life. Our world, our relationships, our bodies, there's disease, there's sickness, there's evil, there's death. So in a sense, illness does come as a result of the fall, which is true of all of us. We all live under the curse. We all live after the fall, before heaven. It's also true that certain actions, certain sins, result in illness or sickness, So if you smoke too much, you may well have lung cancer. If you are a drunk, if you drink too much, you may well have liver failure. If you box too much, you may get brain damage. Those are kind of obvious things. But the Bible certainly does not teach that the people who suffer the most are the people who have sinned the most. The Bible does not teach that. Sadly, there are many, many uh, people, many churches, many Christians 
You find them often in charismatic churches or prosperity churches. You find it in Zionist churches, in ZCC, that the reason you are suffering is because you have sinned. And my dear friend, that is frankly not true. That is not what the Bible teaches. Turn with me to one or two passages. Let me quickly show you John chapter 9. John chapter 9, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. Let me read. Have you got it there? John chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man's son sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So there's the common thinking. The man is blind. The reason is because he sinned, and Jesus diametrically opposes their thinking, their worldview. He says, no, it was not the sin of the parents. It was not the sin of this man. No, God had other purposes. He is not blind because he sinned. Quite clear, quite categorical. Turn to the letter of Paul, Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. I could give you many examples, but we'll just pick up these two. Philippians 2, verse 25. Philippians 2, verse 25. I hope you can find it there. Philippians 2, verse 25. Let me read. Paul writes and says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So notice here we have Epaphroditus, if you've got a, if you're planning to have a baby, well, there's a wonderful name, isn't it? Yo, that'll go a long way. Epaphroditus. Notice who he was. He was a brother, so to speak, a spiritual brother of the Apostle Paul, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, a messenger, a minister. And yet he's not exempted from illness or sickness. Chapter 2, verse 19, the same chapter, verse, uh, verse 19, Paul talks about Timothy. And uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, don't look it up, Paul says to that same Timothy, he says, stop drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. I mean, that's extraordinary. Here are two disciples, here are two apprentices, here are two colleagues of the great apostle Paul, he is their mentor. And yet they are not exempted, they are not inoculated from illness, from sickness. It's quite obvious, my dear friends, when you read the Bible, Christians are not exempted from the brokenness of this world. We are not exempted from living under the curse. That includes plagues and bacteria and viruses and cancer and diabetes and brain tumors and old age and death. It deeply, deeply concerns me as a pastor that there are so many, many Christians who live with false guilt and false doubt because of this false teaching. The Bible does not teach that those who suffer the most have sinned the most. You will find countless 
godly women and men throughout the ages who have lived and suffered in extraordinary ways and yet never abandoned their Lord and their Savior. We are not exempted from these things. It is wrong to say that those who suffer the most have sinned the most. And it's certainly not taught in this passage. Let's go back to Mark, Mark chapter 2. Our first point, the the preacher's priority. Let me read again verse 1 to 5. The preacher's priority. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Well, as we've seen, because of the crowds, the four friends um, can't get to Jesus. So they go up the outside stairs onto the roof. They break through the thatch and the mud roof and let their paralyzed friend down the hole with ropes. Obviously, IBR sheeting and tiles for Africa had not yet reached Capernaum. They were at the back end of the Roman Empire. Again, as we've seen, it's patently obvious what what the man's greatest need is. He's paralyzed. He can't walk. He's totally dependent on other people. He's probably unemployed. And Jesus, instead of saying, be healed, says, your sins are forgiven. Now, I can imagine... That in that crowd, there's a man there, he's a cynic, he's a skeptic, he's been dragged there by his wife under duress to come and listen to the words of Jesus, and on hearing these words of Jesus, he digs his wife in the ribs and he says, I told you, these religious people are irrelevant. It's pie in the sky. You see, here's one of those passages in the Bible which the world looks at, and says, here's a man whose obvious need is physical healing, and the head of your church mumbles some pious words about forgiveness. I mean, that's so out of touch, isn't it? It's so yesterday, it's so irrelevant. Perhaps when this man heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, imagine what went through his mind. Perhaps he thought to himself, well, uh, thanks, (laughs) thanks, But that's not actually why I'm here. I've got a much more immediate problem. Can't you see? But in fact, Jesus knows something the man doesn't know. Jesus knows that he's got a far bigger problem than being physically paralyzed. Jesus is actually saying to him, I understand your problems. I can see your suffering. We'll get to that. But what you need to understand is that man's problem is not suffering, it's sin. Man's main problem isn't physical healing, it's spiritual healing. It's a little bit like if someone has a car crash and suddenly you are rushed off to Sunning Hill Hospital, you land up there in the emergency room, a doctor comes, rushes in to examine you, and there are two things wrong with you after the car crash. The one is you've got a major fractured skull and a broken finger. No guessing which the doctor will deal with first. 
Jesus says your real problem is not a broken back. Your real problem is a broken heart. Jesus says by coming to me only wanting your body healed is not going deep enough. I, I would think that everyone's paralyzed, everyone who is paralyzed, and perhaps there's someone paralyzed watching here this morning. You naturally want, with every fiber in your body, you want to walk. If only I could walk, I'd never complain. I'd never be unhappy. I'd be free. And Jesus says, my daughter, my son, you are mistaken. Now that may sound a bit harsh, but it's profoundly true. The roots of your identity go far deeper. The roots of your discontent go far deeper. It's not your back, it's your heart. Tim Keller, in one of his books, talks about Cynthia Hemel, an American author. She knew success. She lived amongst celebrities in Manhattan. She wrote an article... She wrote many articles, but in one of our articles, she writes about actors and actresses who desperately want to be famous. If only I could make it in this business, I'll be happy, is the kind of thinking they have, which is obvious. She continues, like many other people, they were stressed, driven, relentless. But when they actually got the fame they longed for, Hemel said, they became insufferable, unstable, angry, manic, Not just arrogant, as you would expect, but worse, they were unhappier than they used to be. She said, I quote, she wasn't a Christian. She's she's late. She wrote, and I quote, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Once they were perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted... Fame. They worked, they pushed, pushed, they never gave up. But the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted an overdose. Because that giant thing that they were striving for, the fame they desperately wanted, that was going to make them fulfilled and happy, had happened. But nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. End of quote. Perhaps you have a family member like that. Perhaps you have a boss like that. Perhaps you like that. The Bible says that our real problem is that every one of us is trying to build our identity on something other than Jesus. If only I was married, I would be happy. If only I was divorced, I would be happy. If only I had children, I would be happy. If only the children left home, I would be happy. Whether it's marriage or relationships or career or success or even the ability to walk, deep down you are saying, if I have that, if I achieve my deepest wish, then I'll be happy. You are looking to that thing to save you from mediocrity, from disillusionment, from oblivion. You made that longing into your Savior. You'll never describe it like that. You'll never use that kind of terminology, but that's what's happening. If you never quite get it, that wish, that longing, you're angry, you're unhappy, you're empty. 
But if you do, and here's the catch, you're ultimately more empty, more unhappy, more angry. Right now, can you think of someone like that? Perhaps right now you realize with a shock, he's talking to me. You've made your deepest longing your savior, and it's not working. Now, the problem is not that you have a deep longing. It's not wrong to want to be loved and respected. It's not wrong to want to be married. It's not wrong to want to succeed. It's not wrong to want to walk. What's wrong is when we think getting your greatest wish or longing will heal you, will fulfill you, will save you, will satisfy you. Jesus is really saying, verse 5, only I can heal you. Only I can save you. Only I can satisfy you. Remember Augustine, one of the greatest church fathers uh, of Christendom. He's one of my great heroes. Uh, He was born 13th of November, 354 A.D. in Algeria. That's why uh, at every Soccer World Cup I support Algeria, because of Augustine. He was a Berber. He came from the Berber tribe. And his theology profoundly, his understanding, his teaching of the Bible profoundly affected all of Christendom. In fact, Martin Luther, who was a key figure in the Reformation, was profoundly influenced by Augustus. Augustine. And you remember his famous quote. It's precisely what we're looking at here in this passage. Remember what he said? You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's stunning, isn't it? It Takes your breath away. That's verse 5. Almost always when we first go to Jesus, we say, this is my deepest longing, my deepest wish, oh Jesus. It may be health or wealth or relationships. And Jesus says, verse 5, you need to go a lot, lot deeper than that. It's your heart, not your back. John Chapman, the Australian evangelist, he's now with the Lord told the story. It's quite long, but I think it really gets to the heart of the matter. A quote from Chapo. In 1992, a group of Christian students at Oxford University invited me to give some lectures for them on Christianity. Before I spoke each night, one of the students told us how he or she had become a Christian. On the last night, a young man in a wheelchair was lifted onto the stage. He maneuvered himself to a short mic and this, is, this was his story. I've been in this wheelchair since I was eight. It came with a car accident. However, that is of no importance. I'm reading history at this university, and that is also of no, no importance. Some years ago, I read a book written by my uncle called The Enigma of Suffering. The book was technical and difficult, but at the end of it, I was convinced that God was there and that he was basically good. I asked my uncle if he would recommend any other books. He gave me another book, and as I read it, I discovered that I was a sinful man and in desperate need of forgiveness. I also read that Christ's death on the cross was to offer me total forgiveness, which I accepted. As I stand before you tonight, I stand as a totally forgiven me. 
And that is important. The only other thing I want to say is that God has been so good to me that I want to spend the rest of my life serving him. And I think that is important. And that is all I have to say. He wheeled himself to the front of the stage and the ushers lifted him down. End of quote. As I said in our passage today, this man's greatest problem was not his broken back, but his broken heart. Our greatest need is not physical healing, it is spiritual healing. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless. Whether we can walk or not, whether we married or not, whether we have children or not, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Well, there we have the preacher's priority. Principle number two, the preacher's person. Let's pick it up, verse six. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? So what became... What began as a heartwarming healing suddenly becomes a punch-up. Notice verse 8, Jesus can read the motives of the hearts of those around him. By the way, including yours and mine. Scary. You bet. When Jesus says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, the scribes, the religious leaders, are furious. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sin. Does he think he's God or something? They believe that Jesus is blaspheming, that Jesus claims to do something that only God can do. So they're saying to themselves in their hearts, we all know what the scriptures teach. Only God can forgive sin. This man claims to be able to forgive sin, so he's actually claiming to be God, which is blasphemy. And of course, of course, they're absolutely right. Jesus is claiming to be God. So the claim Jesus makes in verse 5, either it's absurd... Or he's God. Let me, try and, let me try and illustrate that. Let's say Tom, Dick, and Harry are talking. And then Tom punches Dick in the mouth, and there's blood everywhere. Then Harry goes up to Tom and says, Tom, I forgive you for punching Dick in the mouth. It's okay, it's all over. What's Dick going to say when he recovers? He says, Harry, you can't forgive Tom. Only I can forgive Tom. He didn't punch you, he punched me. You see, it's obvious you can only forgive someone if they've sinned against you. Which is why when Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven, he is really saying, your sins have really been against me. My dear friends, the only person who can ultimately possibly say that is God, our creator. So Jesus, by forgiving the man, is claiming to be God, God Almighty. 
The scribes know that Jesus isn't just claiming to be a miracle worker. He's claiming to be God. And they are understandably furious about it. Forgiveness is the exclusive right of God. And Jesus is clearly claiming that he's, that he's, that he's God. He's claiming that right. Blasphemy, they say, verse 7. And blasphemy was punishable by death, Leviticus 24, which is precisely why in the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 6, they are determined to destroy him, to kill him. Just remember that being a follower of Jesus is not for the faint-hearted. The error of the teachers of the law is not recognizing who Jesus really was, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the only one who has ultimate authority to forgive sin. All sin is ultimately against God. Even if you hurt your neighbor, ultimately you've sinned against God. God is the most offended. You're created by God. You're God's creature. God owns you. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Keep your place there in Mark 3. Psalm 51. It's a prayer of confession. It's one of the great prayers of confession in the Bible. It's a prayer of David, King David. And he writes this prayer after his marathon of sins, adultery with Bathsheba, who was a married woman, married to Uriah. He stole Uriah's wife. He then murdered Uriah by gross deceit. He then lied to the nation of Israel. There, at least, he's broken four of the Ten Commandments. And yet he says here in Psalm 51, verse 4, he says, against you, Speaking to God. He's praying to God against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So whether you sin against your spouse, your children, your parents, your employer, your colleagues, the state, ultimately you offend God the most. And ultimately only the triune God can forgive you, can wash you, can cleanse you. Verse 7, he prays and says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out, blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a spirit, a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Perhaps that's the prayer you need to pray today. Thirdly, will you notice, and lastly, the preacher's power, verse 9. Back to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 9. The preacher's power, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But you but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, it's quite obvious from a human perspective, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can prove it one way or the other. Forgiveness cannot be verified, but healing can. 
So Jesus says to the scribes, I'll prove that I have the power to forgive by showing you I have the power to heal. And he says to the man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And that's precisely what happened. Notice again, there's no holy water, there's no holy oil, there's no seed money, there's no hours of prayer, there's no mumbo-jumbo, no, just a word from Jesus. And the man, man rose and picked up his bed and went home. No wonder, verse 12, people were amazed, glorified God and said, we never saw anything like this, neither before nor since. Do you think it's possible that Jesus could be anything other than the Son of God? Surely the Son of God can heal both body and soul. Surely the Son of God is right when he says, your real problem is not a broken back, but a broken heart. And then he goes ahead and he heals both. Back and heart. What we have here is a miracle. It's absolutely supernatural. It not only shows the power of Jesus to heal, but the power and authority of Christ to forgive sin, which ultimately is our greatest need and our greatest problem. Let me close with three points. Number one, God's forgiveness is free of charge. All that the paralyzed man and his friends had to do was to come to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to trust that Jesus was the only one who could help them. And Jesus responded big time. It's called grace, the unmerited love of God. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. If you work the whole month and get paid, that's not grace. You've earned it. If you don't work the whole month and get paid, that's grace. Whenever you, uh, whenever you receive a gift like a birthday gift, of course it's free. It's a gift. But someone had to pay for it. So it is for forgiveness. It's free. It's absolutely free. But someone had to pay for it. Christ paid for it. And he paid for it with his life. It's called the dark side of forgiveness. One author put it like this. It's hard to imagine a more unfair execution. Jesus was not a criminal but died between two criminals. Jesus posed no political threat, but it was po politicians who sealed his fate. Jesus never spoke of a military takeover, and yet it was soldiers who pierced his hands with nails. On that day, the only truly innocent man of all history was slaughtered like a truly guilty man. But that's precisely the point. One innocent man died in the place of all guilty people so that all guilty people could be innocent. He absorbed the punishment so that we could, be, we could go free. He endured the judgment so that we could enjoy forgiveness. He suffered hell so that we could go to heaven. The blow we deserved, he took. That's the dark side of forgiveness. And he did it because he loves you. After everything, he still loves you. That is extraordinary. How amazing. How unbelievable. Second point, there's no greater freedom than the freedom from sin, shame, and guilt. No greater freedom. 
Think of that one thing you are most ashamed of. Think of it right now. Think of it. The thing you are most ashamed of. The thing you never talk about. The thing you would like to erase from your mind. He offers complete and total forgiveness for that. And no T's and C's. One psychiatrist said, I would lose half my patients if I could forgive them. In an old New York graveyard, there's a tombstone with just one word. No name, no name, no date of birth, no date of death, no epitaph or poem. Just one word, forgiven. Is that true of you? If not, why not today find a quiet place? No people, no screen, no social media. Just Psalm 51. Just Psalm 51. Read it. Pray it. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Thirdly, to receive God's forgiveness, you must ask for it. And you do that through prayer. Well, let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word and you tell God where you are. This is a prayer that you may want to pray just quietly in the back of your head. Oh, Father, will you have mercy on me? Forgive me, Lord, for looking to things of this world to be my Savior. Forgive me, Lord, for thinking that created things, especially good created things, could fill the restlessness of my soul. Forgive me, Lord, when I've tried to find my identity in anything other than yourself. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Cleanse me, wash me, because of what Christ did for me on the cross. And help me to live for you. For me to live is Christ. And help me to live under your leadership. Oh, Lord, will you deal with each and every one of us?
and draw us back to yourself that our restless souls may find their rest in you. So, Lord, go with us into this week. Help us to live for you. Help us to speak for you. Help us to stand for you. Wherever you've placed us, we need your help. We need your spirit. Go with us, and we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, once again, it's been my great joy and privilege to be with you in spirit and to open God's word. Will you take some time today to look at, read, to pray Psalm 51 for yourself? Next week, we're going to continue, God willing, Mark chapter 2 from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. So it'll be a great help to me if you can read that before next week. God bless you and have a good week.